You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. How are y'all doing today? Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hope y'all had a great Thanksgiving. My name is Scott Mahan. I'm the director of 514 Student Ministries here at Providence. It's a uh, pleasure to greet y'all. Uh, Here at Providence, we have a simple vision, that is to make the gospel unignorable in our communities. Uh, And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe it's the only way that we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And today, we're going to be doing a standalone series on gratitude in Psalm 69, verses 30 through 36. So if you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and open up there. If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that should be good. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath uh, the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Psalm 69, verses 30 through 36. And when you've gotten there, please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, we're going to be in Psalm 69, verses 30 through 36. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family and enjoyed yourself. Um, Before we jump into the passage this morning, I really quickly want to take a few minutes, have a little bit of a family talk. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. The next like three minutes is going to be aimed at members and just kind of updating on certain things uh, that are going on with our building If you are a member and you weren't able to make it to our special members class uh, the other night, this is for you. We're at the tail end of uh, securing our construction loan, but in order to accomplish that, we're having to raise like $160,000 before Christmas, you know, big goals. I wanted to update you and say, we've really made some great headway on that. I'm hoping to have some numbers uh, maybe next week or the week after. We're trusting the Lord with it. We know that the Lord will provide. Um, But what I wanted to remind you is just to encourage you, if you weren't able to attend and you wanted to know more details, you wanted to know more info, because typically we have members meetings way planned out. And this was one of those things where we had the information, came to us, okay, well now we have to have a members meeting. When is it? I don't know, tomorrow, let's do it. And so a lot of you weren't able to make it. Um, and this is not me. Uh, I, have, I cannot throw stones from the glass house. I'm the, the world's worst in the church at not opening my Providence emails. Now, I feel like I have a legit excuse because I write some of them. But now I write less of them and I'm still bad at it, okay? And so I really have no excuses anymore. I'm not throwing stones at you. If you did uh, not receive the email, go back, look in your spam. We recorded the members meeting because we knew it was just not going to work out for everybody's schedules. And in that, we we included all the information numbers-wise. Ty did a great job kind of lining that out. And then I I had a chance to talk a little bit about the vision, why it's important. And so if you want to hear more information, you can check that out. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned it for those of you who weren't able to be here. Okay, got a lot to do. I skipped an entire point out of my sermon notes last, uh, last sermon at 9 o'clock, so I'm hoping that I can do a better job and not be a schlub. But in order for me to do that, I need to pray for us, okay? So we got to stand alone this morning. 
Uh, we ended the book of Mark last week, and we're just going to talk about the topic of gratitude. Uh, my prayer this morning is to be mostly helpful, uh, practically helpful to you from the Word of God. Obviously, we just went through Thanksgiving. I, I, I do want to lay some theological groundwork, but more than that, I want to be practically helpful in wh- why we should live lives of gratitude and also how we should live lives of gratitude. So before I do, if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word, and then we'll jump in. Father, we enter your presence with thanksgiving first and foremost, not merely for all that you've given and all that you've done, but for who you are. Thank you, my God, that you are a generous God, a gracious God, a good God. You care for us and you love us. You've communicated to us time and time again, and you've preserved your word that we might know how you feel about us, your disposition towards us. We thank you that we can run to your word, not just for wisdom for life, but for life itself, because your word leads us to you. We pray that you would humble our hearts, God. Give us uh, sensitive, tender hearts. Give us ears that hear, eyes that see. Minister to us, each of us, as we Each are in different circumstances, different seasons of life, but you know us and you know what we need. And so we pray, my God, that you would meet those needs, both the things that we know and the things that we do not. We trust you. And in the end, my God, we pray that we might leave out of here more like you, to shape us, you would mold us through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. All right, I want to read Psalm chapter 69, starting in verse 30 again. Just as a side note, we're going to try as best we can. Again, I already mentioned I uh, didn't get to this last uh, sermon. going to do my best to read a little bit of the front end of this psalm. The reason is because I do believe the context of the psalm matters to this back half stanza that we're about to read. But, But the focal point is verses 30 through 36, David's kind of culminating thoughts in this psalm. Namely, that he will come before the Lord with thanksgiving and magnify God in this way. And so I want to read verses 30 and 31 first. David culminates this psalm like this. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. I will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving, he says. Now, we probably intuitively understand, at least with context clues, what he means. But we ought to ask, what does he mean or what does it mean to magnify the Lord in the first place? You need to make much of the Lord or to worship the Lord. We probably could get around that. But really there's two ways, because the word magnify is used in multiple English translations. There's two ways for us to magnify in the English language on earth. We either magnify in a microscopic sense or we magnify in a telescopic sense. So when we magnify in a microscopic sense, we take something that is very um, small, so small that the naked eye can't see it, and we magnify it to make it look larger so that we can make sense of what's happening. You do this with things like bacteria or um, you know, different molecules. You magnify what is very small and make it look larger. Now, a telescope magnifies, but it magnifies almost in the inverse way. It takes something that already is infinitely larger than what we commonly deal with, for instance, like uh, planets. But because it's so far away and because of the distance, we take something that looks small but actually big and we magnify it so that it looks bigger to us. Now hear me, not as big as it actually is because it's actually much bigger than we could ever magnify 
but we still make it look bigger so that we have a sense that when we look at the moon or our children grow up and look at the moon, they're not really looking at a you know, nickel-sized uh, orb, even though that's what it looks like. It's something much larger, and so we magnify it. When we're talking about magnifying the Lord with thanksgiving, we're, David's talking about magnifying in the telescopic sense, not the microscopic sense. David's not saying that you and I as Christians, we give thanks to God and we do so publicly and boldly because we want others to see God as significant and meaningful. And even though he's not that, if we could just build him up, then others would see him as such. So we give thanks and we give glory and we give, so we make God look bigger than he actually is. That's not what David's saying. David's saying God already is magnificent, already is more glorious than we could ever imagine. And because of our distance through sin, through the struggles of living in a fallen world, he seems less glorious than he actually is. And we magnify the Lord through thanksgiving. We bring him nearer even though we know we'll never truly be able to reveal just how glorious he actually is. Now, how do we do that when we give thanks? Well, when we give thanks, we bring to mind all of God's good gifts, all of his grace. We make it known through our words and through our actions, but more than just being thankful for all the things that God does, his hand, we're grateful for who he is, that just his very being, his very presence, his very person is something that we ought to be grateful for. Now, what happens is then David throws this very rare, not rare for the time, rare for us, curveball in here. Um, it's not familiar enough for us. Now, for those of you who have been here for any length of time, it's probably a little more familiar for you because we went through the book of Exodus and we've tried to do a lot of Old Testament work. But then he says this thing that might be foreign to the modern reader, verse 31 Thanksgiving, this magnification of thanksgiving to God will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. Now, what is he getting at? Because to the modern sensibilities, it's like, yeah, okay, uh, each of those gifts don't really register with us as something that you'd be like super happy about, you know, on Thanksgiving or, um, I don't know, Christmas time if you got like a, unless you're an FFA family, you know, then maybe you're good for it. But like there was this running joke, I think it was a quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles that he was really excited and, you know, I, it was his birthday or something. Like, what, what did your family get for you? And he said, like, he got a milk cow because he was a, was a country boy. And they were all laughing at him on, like, NFL Sunday. Like, this, what is this guy? Why does he want a milk cow? Like, the first thing he bought with his millions was a dairy cow, you know? But that's, that's rare for a modern person to think in this way. But D David, it's even rarer. He's talking in terms of Old Testament sacrifice and worship. He's saying, what pleases the heart of God more? That we, by the line and by every jot of the law itself, we follow it, that we might sacrifice an animal to him, or that we sacrifice this praise and thanksgiving from the heart to him. He says, what pleases God more is the heart than the obedient action. Now, I want to read to you another psalm that explains this. This is Psalm 50, and this gets at the key of what keeps us from being people of gratitude. Have you ever heard of the term ingrate? It's not, it, it's not as uh, common now. It's, like an, it's an older term that's like kind of a slur. If you were called an ingrate, it's uh, not great. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, not, it's not really encouraging to you, let's say. And it really just means this person who's so self-absorbed, self-centered, everything has to turn back on them. They have no gratitude, no thankfulness for anyone around. The ingrate is this uh, 
what's the best word for it? Almost this apostate, this hopeless case. If you're an ingrate, you're what the Old Testament calls this worthless fellow. Like just, what do we do with you? You can never be uh, brought into any semblance of civilized order. You ingrate. That's kind of the idea. And it's all centered around this idea of ingratitude, lacking thankfulness. Listen to what the Bible says here in Psalm 50. This is God speaking, by the way. I will, ex- I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. This is in sacrifice. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields is mine. It's one of my favorite lines. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. This is key in explaining what David's getting at. God tells the Israelites that they had gotten caught up in the obedience to the letter of their sacrificial worship and that they just made sure they killed the right animals. Their hearts were far from God. And he says, I am done with accepting any of your animals. Here's why. I don't eat the bulls. I don't drink the blood of them. That's what he says. Now that's interesting because in the Old Testament, the pagan nations actually believed that their gods were consuming the food they would lay down at the altars, that were drinking the blood. And God says, I'm not, uh, first of all, I don't eat that. Second of all, I don't have needs. It's beyond whether or not I'm hungry. If I were ever hungry, I'd never tell you because you can't help me. Because the food that I would need, where are you getting it from? I gave all your food to you. God basically tells the Israelites he would not have them on a phone a friend if he needed, it, needed them for the million dollars because they could not offer him any knowledge. This Paul would reiterate this in Romans 11 when he says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Like who does God call up and say, ooh, I'm having a tough day at work. What should I do with this situation? He doesn't call us because he doesn't need us. Now that sounds harsh, but it's essential to understand why we should walk in gratitude. Hear me, you and I do not enrich God with our generosity or with our sacrifice or our worship. Why? Because God has no needs. It's pleasing to God when we sacrifice and worship with thanksgiving. Why? Because it speaks to his true nature and then our true nature and position before him. Namely, God is the giver. And even when you and I give, God is still the giver. And everything we give to him is merely giving back to him what he has given to us first. And even then, it is not a necessity on God's end, but it's a necessity for us to give. We receive always as we worship and give. We're in the recipient's chair. It's a privilege to give because of what it does for us, not because of what it does for God. Now, let me give you an example of this because it might not make sense. You might be thinking that's really backwards. Well, hear me. If you're a parent in the room, and I'm not trying to alienate you if you're not a parent, but this is just a really good example, and I think it'll be helpful. If you're a parent in the room, your kids get to an age where you want to start teaching them about developing the characteristics of generosity and giving. So what do you do at Christmas time? We've all probably done something like this, or it's been done for us. You give your kid that $20, and you send them into Dollar General, and you say, hey, let's make a list of all the people that you want to get Christmas gifts for. Maybe they do this at your kid's school or they get to go into the book fair or whatever, and then they, you get them a list, and they buy Christmas presents, right? And you send them in there with $20. Now, they go in. Hear me. You didn't do that because you really needed 
or even wanted that ceramic bear that's slightly chipped, wrapped up in a Walmart bag, and given to you on Christmas Day. You didn't do that. Also, your kids didn't bring to the table any money to buy it for you. So in, in, a, in a roundabout way, you bought yourself a gift you didn't want. Right? So what's the purpose? What were you trying to accomplish? Like, I, I don't want the bear. Uh, my kids don't have the money. There's, there's got to be a greater purpose in all of this. Well, what were you doing? Well, what you were doing is you cared enough that your children would learn to imitate a characteristic that you have gained or that you have or that you hold prayerfully because you know that it will be good for them. It was for their good that you paid for them to give. Does this make sense? It was for their good that you, you provided everything that they might give back to you, but you didn't get much at all from it except for what? The joy of your children learning to be generous. Ah, that was the gift you gave yourself. But ultimately it was for their good. Now the tragedy is that even in our worship, we can fall into the trap of self-glorying, self-exaltation, self-magnifying. We fancy ourselves benefactors to God. Look what we offer, you know. That's why we have to try to be careful even when we're raising funds for something in the church. We have to remind ourselves God is not in need. Yes, we're required and we ought to give and we ought to be generous, but we're not benefactors toward God. He is faithful. He will take care of everything that he desires. Now, the reality is the love of God is much like the love of a father, but except he's the perfect father. This was the analogy Jesus continued to give. Yes, thanks and praise are due to God just because of who he is. And the grand purpose of your life and my life is to bring glory to his name. And yet, what does the Bible tell us about the heart of God? for those who don't glorify him, don't worship him. What does he do? He makes it rain on the just and the unjust. He makes the sun rise on the wicked and the righteous. What does this tell us about God's character and nature? Um, Even when you and I are not generous, God remains generous because he will not deny himself. It is who he is. He is always good. And he's good towards us even when we're not good towards him because this is who God is. Now, the heart of the father is for his children to imitate that goodness. Listen to me. Imitate that goodness just like God is good despite circumstances. He just is good. That we might be imitators of that goodness. Image bearers of God in his generosity. In his all good, all perfect love. Now, why would this be? Listen to me, nothing brings the father more glory than, ch- than his children living in this way. Nothing brings the father more glory than the children living in a way that images his goodness. Now, you, again, if you're a parent, or even if you're not a parent, you've probably done this before. A kid comes up and serves you at a table at a Chili's. You and your family are being, let's say, less than wholesome. Okay, like your kids are having a rough night and maybe they haven't slept very well. And so, you know, 
quickly the food that should be on the table ends up under the table. Quickly the crayons start drawing on things they shouldn't be drawing on. You and your wife are not exactly the most patient on that day, and so maybe you're a little frustrated because the cups aren't coming as they should be coming. But the waiter, meanwhile, maintains this element of loving, kind. Oh, man, it's no big deal. We'll make, he'll take care of this. Keeps bringing more crayons out for the kids. Picks up there, never complains. And what do you typically say? I'm like, man, this kid's, this kid's kind of special. He's, this kid's good. And then you'll say something like, he must have good parents. Now, why do you say that? Why do you say that? Because all of us have a worldview, even if we don't admit that we have a worldview, namely that kids aren't born like that. All you have to do is have kids and you'll know. They aren't born respectful and kind and patient and long-suffering and enduring and caring. And Now, they have also, they're image bearers too, so kids have wonderful attributes like You know, my kids do certain things that they're just wonderful. It's it's unbelievable because they're image bearers of God. But they aren't born completely formed and shaped in this kind of way, you know. And so you'll say something like, man, that kid must have good parents. So what has happened? The glory starts with the kid, but it really resonates back up to who is the person who shaped this child. In the same way that when you look at a beautiful building, it quickly turns to that building's beautiful to who built it. Nothing's more glorious to the Father than when the children live in a way that brings the glory to his name. Now hear me, there's another side to this, which is, and nothing brings the children more joy than living the way the Father leads. Parents, you know, you don't, you don't raise your children just so somebody would come to you and pat you on the back and say, you did a good job with those kids. Now, of course that feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> it feels great when somebody says, man, you did a really good job with your kids. You might even go like, oh, no, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. But deep down, you're like, we did do a good job with these kids. No, that's not why you do it. You know why you do it? And I don't even have to know you to know this, because you believe, not only is it your God-given duty to, but you believe that what you are instilling in your children ultimately will be for their good and for their joy. That if they learn to be a grateful person, if they learn to be a kind person, if they learn to be a long-suffering person, that they'll build better friendships. Their marriages will be better. They'll be better employees and potentially employers. Their life will flourish if they live in this way, and it brings joy to their lives. And that's why you want them to imitate and to to bear the image that you're teaching them. And the Father is the self-same way. Yes, it brings him glory, and it brings us joy because he is good to us. Now, I got to speed up because that's just the beginning. It's, it's, It's us getting a a taste for, so why should we live lives of gratitude? Well, here's why. The glory of God and our good. We should live this way. Now, what does it look like? This is the part where I hope that I can be practically helpful. Because if the nemesis of gratitude is self-glory, we have to talk about these wretched children that self-glory tends to bear forth in your life. And you can see some of these. And so I want to be practically helpful to help you identify them. And then we'll go on the back end and say, now, how do you attack them? with the fruit of the Spirit. So let's start. The first is grumbling. Grumbling. The ungrateful heart tends to focus on everything that it doesn't have, and it forgets everything that it's been given. And this necessarily leads to a life of grumbling. The children of Israel are set free from slavery in Egypt by God's miraculous hand. They make their way out into the desert. They are led by a pillar of fire at night, which warms them and lights the way. A cloud by day, which keeps them from being scorched by the sun and keeps them cooler. They also are fed from from heaven, manna from heaven. And really quickly on, they start saying, 
grumbling against Moses and against the Lord saying, we wish we could go back to slavery in Egypt. It's just the, the nature of the character of the sinful human heart. And everybody knows this guy, okay? And if you don't know this guy or gal, you might be this guy or gal. So I'm just giving you a fair warning. Nothing can be a good thing without it being mitigated with a bad thing. Look at this new car I got. Oh, man, I heard those get bad gas mileage. Ooh, they got a recall on that car, actually. Okay, thanks, man. <laughs> you know? Anything good that happens in your life, there's a mitigation to it. It's like, oh, don't get too excited, you know? It's like, oh, man, I got, I got given this vacation, this free vacation from work, and this guy didn't get to go, and so he gave it to me. He's like, ooh, I heard there's a lot of crime down there where you're going. Oh, sweet, thanks, man. The storm crow, good things happen, they find a way to bring you back down to reality. No enjoyment in the blessings received because deep down, this person always feels like they are owed way more than you could ever give them. I, I, you are in so much debt to me that there could be not any blessings that you could give that would bring us up to par. And so we have to bring it back down to remind you, yeah, maybe you gave me a little bit, but the debt's bigger. Now we can find ourselves in a situation whether we know it or not. Your wife makes dinner for you, husbands, but it's not the favorite dinner that you want. It's not the one you told her you wish you would make, hinting. Or wives, your husband finally plans a date night, but it's that same predictable place you told him I'm tired of going. All right? Your kids clean their rooms, parents, and you say, rather than, man, thanks, that's awesome. You say, about time you did something around here, you're lazy. You get a raise at work, and you say, barely going to cover inflation. <laughs> you get to go on a vacation with your family finally, and you're like, yeah, if the beds weren't so lumpy, the weather wasn't so bad. See how this goes? Grumbling kills praise because it, it sucks up all the space, all the space around it. And it, it allows you no, no room to fill your mouth with words of thanksgiving because all you're doing is fault finding with all those people around you, things in your life. Now, here's the good news. The good news is thanksgiving kills grumbling in the inverse because it fills your mouth with praise and there's no room for the grumbling to make its way in. Number two is covetousness. So the children of Israel, after they wander and they finally make it into the promised land, in the book of Judges, actually at the end of the book of Judges, as Samuel begins, they say, we want a king like all the other nations. Grumbling only lasts for so long until you start noticing all of the things that your neighbor has that you don't have. And this inevitably will expand your ingratitude. Their car is nicer than mine. Their kids are more photogenic than mine. Look at our pictures and look at their pictures. They always get to go on vacation. Why don't we ever get to go on vacation? He never has to pick up extra shifts. And here I am working on the holidays again. She always gets her nails done and her hair done. And look at me, peasant. You know? Our family never has time to go to the park together like them. Look at their pictures, the park and the kids. We don't ever have time for that. You know, we're doing working and surviving. So you see, covetousness is not confined to material things. We can covet our neighbor's physical appearance, their personality, their perceived spiritual piety, their knowledge, their intellect, their friendships, their social, circ their social circles, on and on it goes. Covetousness kills gratitude because it shrinks your vision and only allows you to see what your neighbors possess and you do not. It precludes the enjoyment that you could have had in what God has given to you. In other words, your eyes are only turned to their driveway. You never turn them to your driveway. 
You don't get to enjoy the car that you have because you're so angry about the car that they have. It can even preclude recognition of what God's given to you in the first place. We just forget that God gave us that thing. Now, the good news is that Thanksgiving kills covetousness because it brings to remembrance not just how much God has given to you as you survey it. You know, because if we did that exercise where we started thinking of all the things we could thank God for, what it does is it starts to bring up just how much you have to be thankful for. It's why we do the exercise. But what's necessary is you have to get your mind out of what you don't have in order to really think about this. And then once you start writing it down, once you start thinking, wow, I have a whole lot of things in my life, and not just stuff, but hear me, but the thanksgiving to God for who he is, the greatest gift that, they, that has ever been given. Lastly, the last child of ingratitude and self-glory is bitterness, bitterness and cynicism. The joy that's available to you now becomes so clouded, it's not even visible anymore. Your life is just a series of unfortunate events. Bad things only happen to you. You might even find yourself saying things like this. Naturally, this is constantly confirmed to you because A, you live in a fallen world, and so the cynic will always be proven right over time. You ever thought of this? It's that guy that always says, told you it wasn't going to work out. Yeah, well, you told me that for seven straight years. Of course, it was not going to work out eventually, right? If you are a Debbie Downer, last half full for long enough, something bad's going to happen. You know why? You live in a fallen world. So yeah, the Senate gets confirmed in their cynicism. But then B, and here's something we often miss, bitterness tends to isolate you from the potential blessings the community brings, and so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Bitterness isolates you. I'm not going to have, you know, it's always going to be bad. I'm not going to have friends. I'm not going to be cared for. I'm not to, well, then you don't actually, you're not actually in community because you pull away from it. So then you can't experience the care, the trust, the benefits of community, the loving friendships. And all you do end up getting is a self-perpetuating cycle of exactly what you predicted because you precluded yourself from all the blessings that could come. Now, all relationships to the bitter man are transactional ones. He's cut off from love because love gives freely and he doesn't trust that stuff. The bitter man is a contractual man in all regards. There's no trust, there's no goodwill, there's no loyalty, there's no higher good to strive for. The bitter man justifies all of this by saying, I'm just a realist. Have you ever heard this? Have you ever said it? Like, I know I'm not bitter, I'm just, I'm real. He lives in a world of darkness and ultimately has not wised up and realized it's one of his own contriving. To the bitter man, the world is only filled with dragons, no knights, save one knight himself. He says he's accepted this because he's shrewd, but in reality, he's accepted this because he has isolated himself and won't come to grips with the truth that he himself has become like one of the dragons he loathes. He Rather than fighting and actually going out, you see, fighting and being a knight means you actually have to go out and you have to, what, cross swords with some people. Right? You actually have to go out and fight. But no, that's not what the bitter man does. The bitter man stays away from others, and ultimately, the bitter man kills all gratitude because the world around him is only gray. It can never, it's only negative. You can't have life, can't have joy, can't have those things. Now, here's the good news Thanksgiving uproots the bitterness by its very nature. You don't have to do that plus. Thanksgiving uproots it by its nature because the thankful heart and the bitter heart cannot coexist. They're like oil and water. So once you've taken the, made the decision to have a grateful heart, the bitterness has to flee. It can't stick around. Because if you're going to have a grateful heart, 
That means that your heart's going to be filled with all of the things that naturally contradict what the bitter heart's teaching you and telling you. So it's a simple turn. Now I want to mention the things that I just said, it's easy to fall prey to these things. Maybe you listen to some of those things and you're just like, oh, that's really tough. But all of us will fall prey to these things. Here's the good news. The antidote is actually simple. It finds its culmination in one man in Christ Jesus. But the antidote's very simple. And it's we follow the path that Jesus laid out for us, which are the antithesis of these evil children of self-glory. So here's the opposite ends of these evil children. Number one is children that are children of blessing. When we're grateful, we posture ourselves underneath the spigot of God's grace and goodness. And in so doing, we become conduits of grace to others. You see, God, Genesis 12, blesses us to be a blessing. Like the Jordan River, not like the Dead Sea. It has a way in and way out, okay? So when God pours into us, it's for that sake of also pouring out to others. So what does that look like? Well, when people are hurting, we bring them peace and comfort. When people are downtrodden, we bring them laughter. When people are hopeless, we bring them hope. When people have forgotten God, we come and remind them that God is with them. We see the hand of the Lord in everyday difficulties. We see hardship as an opportunity for God's mighty power to be shown. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, Master, is it because of this man's sin or his, or his father's sin that he's sick like this? And do you remember what Jesus said? Neither, it's so the glory of God might be shown. Those are two different worldviews. One is a closed system where we just are constantly in generational curse after generational curse because all of us have the consequences of our inevitable sinful actions. And then Christ breaks through and says, no, it's that my glory might be shown through grace. It's a different way of seeing hardships. It's a different way of seeing difficulties. It's that God's glory might be revealed through it. This is why Paul could say in Philippians, whether by life or by death, God will be glorified. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what does the passage say? Reading verses 32 through 33. When the humble see it, they will be glad. When they see what? The gratitude of our lives. Those who seek God, let your hearts be revived. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. This kind of life, if we truly live it, will be naturally evangelistic by its nature. It's the salt and light Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. If we live in this way, it's attractive to the humble and to the lowly, to the imprisoned. Why is that? Because that group doesn't have a lot to offer to God, at least in their own perceptions. And when they see that what God requires is not all of the trappings of oxen and bulls and fulfillment and all. No, it's simple. The heart that God desires is the heart of thanksgiving, worship towards him. God is after the heart, and this encourages the lowly, those who are ready to hear the gospel. Number two, encouragement and honor. We live as people who encourage and honor others. Rather than coveting others, Christian contentment allows us to celebrate others around us who succeed. If you want to know a litmus test of spiritual maturity, can you celebrate others when they succeed and are blessed? And I mean this, let me go to another step. And I mean this, can you celebrate the people who are in your own field that are successful? Or like you consider them a peer. It's one thing if you're a boss and one of your employees is nailing it, because that's like by its very nature, it's a blessing to you. You know, oh, my employee's doing well. Guess who else is doing well? You know, you. 
But what about somebody who's, it's no benefit to you. It's a peer. In fact, maybe even a competitor. Can you celebrate it? The Christians can congratulate others in their joys. Rather than seething, they can be truly grateful to God when their neighbors experience a blessing. Rather than, why do they always get it and not me? You say, man, how awesome is it that they got that? Thanks be to God for that. I'm so happy for you that you got that. And you might be thinking, that's so fake. It's only fake if you yourself don't think that you've been blessed by God. If you know that God's already blessed you, then it's not fake because you're just rejoicing that they get to experience it in this way and you in this way. It's fake because we haven't believed the gospel. But the Christian can truly rejoice without hypocrisy because they know they've already been blessed by the greatest blessing of all, namely that God did not spare his own son, but he gave him to us. Remember the disciples, they found themselves often in arguments with each other. What was it over? Which one of us is greater? Now, they'd been called by Jesus to unique vocation. You know, it's not like they were called to be a ba- you know, basketball team or something. It's disciples of the Lord. I think humility would be an important thing to exhibit, but they didn't quite get it. They were fighting each other because they saw each other as competition. But what happens after the resurrection? Read the epistles, all of them, constantly. What do they say about each other? They greet one another in all of their letters. They honor one another. They commend one another to the other churches. They pray for one another. And it's obvious that all of the apostles care for one another like brothers because something changed. Well, the gospel changed them. Now, there's a contagious nature to this. It'll be contagious. Listen to me. I'm trying to be helpful. This can be contagious in your very own home. It'd be contagious in a church. When I was first starting off in ministry, in student ministry, we, would all, we had uh, sixth graders all the way to um, seniors in high school, and we also had a college ministry, and so a lot of the college students ended up becoming leaders in this ministry, and so it's a, ro- a broad range of uh, ages um, whenever you got together, like on a Wednesday night. We would teach our leaders and our seniors in high school particularly that when the junior hires came in, the sixth graders came in, that they needed to just talk them up big. They needed to make them feel like a million bucks. They needed to find ways that they knew they were interested in them, they loved them, and they thought that they were cool to be around. And the seniors doing this was key. Why was this key? It created a culture. And what, what happened is rather than junior hires, like typically happens if you have a sibling rivalry, is over time the picked on little brothers like, you know what, I'm going to get back, and they become kind of like the home alone Kevin McAllister, get back to the older brother. And so it's like this cycle of just like tearing each other down. The inverse is true too whenever you have the older brother who takes a liking, a care, a, a, a true like interest in the younger, it happens in, ver- in verse. The sixth grader starts to say, I like being around them. First of all, they start believing that maybe I'm cool. <laughs> And then second of all, they start thinking, I like them too, and I want to honor them too. And he, so you had an inter... We never had problems, if you can believe it, with a few hundred kids, never had problems with older kids picking on younger kids. It just didn't happen because it's contagious. The Bible actually tells us here, verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. The vision of the gospel is this kind of culture all over the world. Every, every church, every family, this is the way that Christ calls us to be. Okay, last thing, and then we got to rush to the close because I do the same thing in both sermons, is joy and hope. Joy and hope. We are people of joy and hope. When we live with hearts of gratitude, our family will flourish, our friendships will flourish. Why does this happen? Because when you're grateful to God for the family and friendships that you have, you naturally start to invest in those things because you are reminded of just how valuable they are to you. You see, 
you could be in this argument with your friends, but if you took enough time to reflect on what do I have to be grateful for about this friendship, it would probably shift your mindset to wanting to invest more in the friendship, not less. Rather than pushing away because you got in this very static argument and, you know, about something that doesn't really matter, once it makes you want to lean in. Hear me, marriage is the same thing. Oh, I'm really upset. Why are you upset? Well, because, you know, my husband or wife, fill in the blank. Can we all agree that we might have a big list there too? What if, what if, and hear me out, you asked yourself, what are you grateful for? What is good about the gift that God gave you and your spouse and actually gave glory to God for it? Well, we know what happens is that it actually causes flourishing because it causes you to invest back in the very thing that you're thanking God for. It's the same idea that when you start to pray for your non-believing friend, you notice yourself actually being more motivated to reach out to them. You ever notice this? <laughs> you're thinking about it. It's on your mind, it's on your heart. And God's shaping you and molding you through your prayers. David says this, listen to this. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now, I didn't mention this before, but there's a lot of question marks about when David wrote this psalm. Here's what we know. It was at the darkest time, probably of his life. And people don't know, is that when, when Saul's chasing him? Because people forget David had really tough times later in his life. And um, if you've lived for any length of time, you know that like your tough times in college, when you get a little bit older, like when you were in high school and that first person broke up with you, you were listening to, you know, Dashboard Confessions, and it was, the, it was it. That was over, you know. You're just ready to jump off a cliff, you know. But then you get older, and you realize there's all these complexities with real hard times. Like, they're bigger than that. It's like, yes, broken, a broken heart's a devastating thing. But start put, putting in, like, physical safety, well-being of your children. Now you got children involved, and all of a sudden, you're, you're at a whole other place. David had a moment when his son took the kingdom from him and ran him out of town. And a lot of commentators say this is when Absalom took over the kingdom. David was spit on by his own followers, his own, his own Israelites, and he's hiding off in a cave while his son's plotting to take over the kingdom. It's intense, to say the least. Psalm 69 includes David saying he's in deep distress, feeling trapped, being in danger, overwhelmed by grief, sore throat from crying out to God all night long being lied about and attacked, being mocked and gossiped about. He's shamed and dishonored, despaired and brokenhearted. He has no friends to pity him or to comfort him. That's all from the first 21 verses. So why did I want to mention that? Well, the most difficult question about gratitude is not whether or not we ought to do it. It's what about the times when you don't feel very grateful for the way your life's going? What about when you feel like your list is shorter? Because it would be easy for me to say, well, you just haven't thought about it enough. Because that's true. But when you're really in the midst of it, don't you want to just punch that guy that says that to you? It's like, don't worry, it's way better than it could be. Ha, ha, ha. You're like, that's great. And then you're planning out his demise later on at night, you know? This psalm tells us we are not required to wait for the best of times to be grateful to God. In fact, the most powerful gratitude comes in the midst of hardship. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses 16 through 18. Listen to this. This is what Paul says. And I want you to know, Paul's one of those guys that's also been through it. What are the things he says we should do always? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks to God in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
I want you to hear for you. This life is for your good. For It's a gift for you. Okay, it's going to feel like it's going against all your inclinations, and yet it's a gift for you. The fruit that will be produced through being obedient in this way will bring life to you. I can't commend it to you enough for your marriage, for your parenting. Being grateful changes us, and it changes us in the best of ways. Now, how can Paul say things like this, all circumstances? We need one thing and one thing alone in order to be able to do this. It's not like super Bible knowledge or like, you know, deep, long suffering. Those are all good things. We need a glorious and an unchanging reality that is outside of our set of circumstances to hold on to. That's what you need to be able to be grateful, even when it's tough. Let me say that again. You need a glorious and unchanging reality that sits outside of your worldly circumstances to hang on to. Like outside of the outcomes of what might happen. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20, this is what Paul says that we have. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, we have an anchor for the soul. We have an unchanging, glorious reality that sets outside of the outcomes, outside of the circumstances that you and I are experiencing. It's our hope. And why do we call it a hope? Well, because we know that it's there, but we see through a glass dimly. We see through a veil, shadows. And we know the substance is there because the shadows exist. The, Paul tells us this, and John says that when we see him face to face, then we'll be made like him. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Beyond the veil, beyond the curtain, there is our anchor who mediates for us our covenant with him. On our behalf, he does it for our good. He does it every day. He does it without ceasing and he does it without fail. And if he isn't sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, then even when it's going difficult, we can be grateful and laugh. Do you know why? Because our sins are forgiven. Because our future is secure. Because our prayers, hear me, will be heard because they're in the name of the Son. Our Father knows us. He has received us. He loves us, he has adopted us, and he will sustain us. We can be grateful in all circumstances, not because we have the confidence, not because we have the strength, not because we have the ability to meet the moment, but because we have an anchor. And the good news is that that anchor will always hold. Gratitude in all circumstances, because come what may, the anchor will hold. Let me pray for us. Father, make us into a people that reflect your goodness. The gratitude that we exhibit, let it not be hypocrisy. Let it not be filled with um, um, church pieties. But Lord, help us to be truly grateful to you. And in so doing, change us from the inside out. Make us people who are encouraging, loving, kind. Not for the sake of our own reputation, but that you might be glorified and we might have true joy and freedom in our lives. I thank you for the people under the sound of my voice who already exhibit these characteristics that are among us. I thank you, God, that you've made them examples to us. They're kind and they're, they're loving and they're generous. And I pray, Lord, that you would, would help us to be encouraged by that. And as we take of your supper, would you bring to remembrance all of the good and great gifts that you've given, but most of all, the gift of your son. And help our 
the meditation of our hearts and the song of our lips be united as we take up your supper in Jesus' name. Amen.